0: So turn with me to Colossians 1. Today is day one of our study in the book of Colossians, and we're just going to take however long we need to get through this book over the next several months. Please stand with me as we read from God's word, Colossians chapter 1. Now Verses 1 and 2 are our sermon text, but we'll read all the way down to verse 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Would you pray with me as you're seated? Father in heaven, we know this is your word, and any understanding we could have from your word is going to come from your spirit. So would you cause your spirit to speak through me this morning? Give us understanding. Father, move me out of the way that you may speak from your word clearly. And boldly change our hearts this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you and me and Paul and the church in Colossae, they're in a similar situation, kind of. Only a little bit. Here's the similarity. This church that Paul is writing to in Colossae is a church that he did not plant. He didn't start this church. And here I am serving you. And You are a church that I did not plant. And that's pretty much where my similarity to Paul ends. <laughs> we have in common something we didn't do. <laughs> well, not only did Paul not plant the church in Colossae as we begin to, to look at who this church is. In fact, this is a church that Paul might have never even visited. He may have never been through that area at all. So up until the Colossians received this letter from the Apostle Paul, they may have only heard of him. Heard of him as as this missionary, this famous missionary that, that preaches all throughout the Mediterranean region. Now the setting here, as Paul is writing to this church, is that he's in a prison somewhere. We don't know exactly where, maybe in Ephesus, maybe in Rome, and he's in prison with these two guys. One's named Aristarchus, and another guy named Epaphras. Now, here's why that matters. Epaphras happens to be the guy that planted this church in Colossae. So while they're in prison, we don't know this exactly, but we can kind of gather this from the book of Acts and and from, from this letter here to the Colossians. While they're in prison, we can imagine that Epaphras is telling Paul about what's going on at his home church back in Colossae. And this brings two reactions to Paul. And we will see that as we study. For one, Paul is he's overjoyed. The good news of churches popping up in places he's never been tells Paul, well, the gospel is, is bigger. It's, it's more fruitful than, than Paul himself could ever be on his own. And he's thrilled that God is working through the gospel to bring to life new churches. But what we'll also see in this book is that Paul's saddened. He's saddened by the bad news that there are false teachers who are trying to divide this young church. So What does Paul do? What does Paul do when he gets this news from Epaphras about this church? Well, he does what... What Paul does best, he writes a letter. He writes this letter, what we call the book of Colossians, and he writes it to encourage this church and to instruct them in their situation. And what we're going to see as we study this this book over the next few months is that Paul points them to Christ. And he points them to the greatness of Christ and what it means to be the church in Christ. And what what it means to be different than the rest of the world because they're in Christ. That's how the Spirit, through Paul, seeks to bring restoration to this struggling church in Colossae. Now, who is Paul anyway? Some of you are, are new to this whole Christianity thing, and I, I don't know anybody here, so I'm just gonna assume that everybody's new, as I am. So I'm just gonna start from the beginning, all right? Who's Paul? He's, here's the short version. If you haven't read the book of Acts, Paul, who goes by the name Saul in some circles, he's this Jewish teacher and leader who spent his early career finding Jesus followers and having them prosecuted for their faith. See, old Paul, before he writes letters like this, he didn't believe that Jesus was really the Son of God. And so he made it his life ambition to silence those who did believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So one day, Paul's on his his way to a new town. He's going to root out some more of these pesky Christians. And Jesus, the Messiah himself, comes down. He meets Paul on the road. He stops Paul in his tracks. He blinds him. And then he calls Paul to be a missionary for him. And to spread the good news of Jesus... All over the world, to people who have never heard it. And that's what Paul does. He doesn't really have a choice. He's got to obey Christ. After his sight is restored, he begins his new life as a Christ follower, and what we call an apostle. We see that in verse 1, if you still have your Bibles open. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I'm going to take off my watch. Not so I can look at it. Don't get your hopes up. (laughs) It's just wiggling around. Let's look there at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, nowadays, apostle is a bit of a technical term. To Greek-speaking folks back in the old days, it just meant one who is sent. It was actually a really common word in Paul's day, and it usually referred to someone who was a messenger of someone or for someone greater than themselves, someone with more authority than they had. So, for instance, if Caesar was going to send a message to a governor in another Roman province, the person he'd send that message with would be called an apostle. Jesus picks up on this language during his earthly ministry, and he adopted this term, and he used it to refer to those whom he was personally sending with his message. So those who carried the title apostle in the early church were those who had seen the risen Lord after he'd died, been buried and resurrected, they'd seen him and they were commissioned by him to carry on his message. That's why Paul calls himself that at the beginning of verse one. He describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul had seen the risen Lord, It was God's will that Paul would be used as one of Christ's apostles, spreading Christ's message, taking Christ's message wherever he went. This is important. Being sent out by Christ, commissioned by Christ himself, it meant that Paul carried with him not just the message of Christ, but the authority of Christ. Why does that matter? Why does that matter for you and me today? Well, it matters for us the same reason that it mattered for the Colossians. See, see when Paul speaks with the authority of Christ, when he introduces himself in this letter as an apostle, the Colossians are obligated to follow Paul's instruction. Whatever he tells them, they're to regard it as if it were from Jesus Christ himself. For you and me, that that means that we are to regard what's in Paul's letters. These, These letters in the Bible, the epistles, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and so on, Colossians. We are as to regard what is in Paul's letters as if they were the very words of Christ himself. Because they are. We can't separate out what's in the Bible based on whether it's in the epistles or whether it's in the gospels. Sometimes we think that because there are red words in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, things that Jesus is quoted as saying, we think maybe they carry more weight with them. Maybe those words, because they're in red, are more authoritative. Not so. That's not true. When an apostle speaks with the authority of the one who sent him, we do not have the option of ignoring his message. We can't ignore Paul's letters because they weren't written by Jesus' hand. Same goes for John's letters or Peter's letters. If King King Jesus chooses to speak through his sent ones, His apostles, then we as citizens of that kingdom, that's what we do. We listen to our king. No matter who the apostle is, no matter how difficult the instruction from that apostle is, we listen to the king's messengers because they're sent by the king. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal, right? We're only in verses 1 and 2. There's nothing difficult here. Wait until we get further along in Colossians. Wait until we read how we're supposed to be the church together. How we're to treat one another. How we're to speak to one another. How we're to spend our time. Wait until Christ, through Paul, teaches us how to love our wives and to submit to our husbands. When those... When we get to those difficult instructions, a little bit of our hearts, an ounce of our flesh is going to say, ah, that's just Paul talking, right? I I don't have to listen to that. It's not in red letters. Friends, do not make that mistake. Colossians, this book, this letter that we're studying, like the rest of your Bible, it is The word of God. It is sufficient. It is relevant. It is authoritative in our lives. Now one more thing before we get to verse 2. You'll also notice that Paul is writing with Timothy. Do you see that there? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is introduced there as a brother, not an apostle. Timothy is Paul's right hand man. If you read the book of Acts, or if you read First and Second Timothy, Timothy is with Paul in most places that he goes. If you just do a quick search, Timothy, what you're going to see is he's always with Paul. Or he's being sent by Paul to help a church that need it, needs it. Or he's, a, he's supporting Paul in some way, or he's, he's running errands for Paul in some way. Paul is a spiritual father to this young man, and this young man is, is someone that Paul trusts. With his life. But he's not an apostle. Timothy's not an apostle because he wasn't commissioned for ministry by Jesus Christ himself. He's more like, he's more like a modern day pastor or a missionary. He's called by Christ. He's ordained for ministry by the elders of his church. But as far as we know, we don't know that that Timothy actually saw the risen Lord Jesus and he wasn't commissioned by Christ directly. So that makes Paul and Timothy different, and it makes their authority different. Let's keep moving now with verse 2. You'll notice this letter is written to the church in Colossae, but Paul doesn't say it that way. He doesn't say to the church in Colosse. Look what he says. Notice how, how Paul addresses this church. He says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Saints and faithful brothers in Christ. In Christ, these people are saints. And in Christ, these people are faithful brothers. It's not the case that some of them are brothers and some of them are saints. No, all who are in Colossae, who are in Christ, are saints and brothers and sisters together. And that goes for us, doesn't it? All of us who are in Christ are saints. And all of us who are in Christ are brothers and sisters together as a church. Now, how can Paul say this? How how is this true? Let's first talk about that word saints for a little bit, shall we? Saints means holy ones. Or more specifically, If you track that word through Scripture, it just is a designation for God's people. The saints are God's people. Saints in Christ, that's important, saints in Christ are those who, by the grace of God alone, are set apart in Christ as God's people. It's not a title that you earn. Saint is not a title that you earn by living a holy life. You're not a saint by your merit or by how many miracles you performed during your life. You are a saint by Christ's merit. Let me put it another way. Sometimes this is confusing for us. Sainthood, or this type of holiness, this set-apartness that Paul's talking about here, it's not about how holy you are compared to other people. It's not a what we call a horizontal qualification. It's a vertical gift of grace. You receive sainthood in its Fullness merely by being born again into Christ Jesus. There are not people who are more saintly than others. There are simply saints, those who are in Christ, and non saints, those who are not in Christ. Now, most of you are thinking, yeah, I get that, right? I know that we're all saints, I know that we're all holy in Christ. I know we get that from God. I I know we don't get that from ourselves. We say that, but we only say that because we're supposed to say that. We're Baptist. But if we take the time, listen, if we take the time to examine our hearts for a moment, I think we're going to find something else going on there. I think what you'll find is that deep down, we really do think that holiness is a me versus them qualification. We do this every time we compare ourselves to someone else and not to God. Let me give you an example. Suppose there's some sin that you do not struggle with at all. Okay, you don't struggle with it. It's never been a temptation for you. Let's just suppose that, that for you, that's homosexuality. When we think of holiness in horizontal terms, as in comparing ourselves to others, rather than vertical terms, comparing ourselves to God, the one who is really, he's the only standard of holiness. When we compare ourselves to others instead, we begin to think this way. I don't struggle with homosexuality like he does. Therefore, I'm more holy than he is. You may not say it out loud. You may not even be aware of what's going on in your heart. But there's a little bit of you, a little bit of you that is proud that in this little area of life, you are more holy than this other person. Here's the problem with that. When we begin to boast just a little bit in our horizontal holiness, even if, it's, even if it's just in our hearts, we begin to ignore the areas of our lives where we are less holy. So maybe, maybe that less holy, that darker area of your life isn't attraction to people of the same sex, but it's something, isn't it? Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's a desire for leisure that becomes slothfulness. Maybe it's a love of money. Maybe it's angry outbursts. What's sad is that we do this comparison thing, not just in those areas, but we do it in areas where we know we're weak. I get anxious sometimes, but I don't get as anxious as she does I'm not that bad. At least I'm more holy than she is when it comes to worrying. So my anxiety problem doesn't need to be dealt with. I watch a lot of TV, but I don't waste as much time as he does, so my mind-melting, time-sucking TV addiction isn't that big of a deal. You see the problem? I may gossip. But I don't gossip as bad as she does, which, really, think about that for a minute. I I just can't even. (laughs) We, We become blind. We become blind to these areas of sin in our lives when our idea of holiness is how holy we are compared to how holy they are or how not holy they are. When our idea of holiness is vertically oriented to God's holiness, then we understand our need for Christ, don't we? Because we find out very quickly we do not measure up to his standard of holiness. In fact, one of the realities of the Christian life is that as you mature in your faith, you become more aware of your sin and simultaneously more aware of God's holiness. And that necessarily enlarges the glory of Christ's work for you. God's grace and His love and His mercy become really, really important to you because you see these attributes of God as absolutely necessary for relationship with Him. But when our idea of holiness is not oriented to God's holiness. When our definition of holiness is ourselves and how we compare to others, our understanding of the gospel becomes dangerously corrupted. Dangerously. Follow this trail with me. When we compare ourselves to others rather than to God, we minimize our sin. Why? Well, if it's not as bad as his or her sin, then it's not that big of a deal, right? And if we're not that bad, then we're better than someone else in our minds. And so we're that much closer to God than they are. What's happened now? Well, if I can get closer to God's holiness just by being a little better than someone else, then the cross of Jesus Christ isn't as necessary for me as it is for them. And when we shrink the cross, we shrink our need for Christ. And when we do that, are you seeing the danger of this road that we're on? When we shrink our need for the cross of Christ, our wonder and our worship at Christ becomes less. Our obedience to Christ becomes less. And the church becomes this mutual admiration society where people can affirm one another for not giving in to sins that they're not even tempted with anyway. And we become a place where we ignore these acceptable sins in our lives. And we don't cry out to God that those sins would be rooted out by the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. I know you're thinking this. That is a lot to say about the word saint. Saint. You're right, it is. But listen, when Paul says that the Colossians are saints in Christ, you've got to understand that's not something they earned by good behavior. And it's not something they can lose by bad behavior. And it's not who they are by their comparison to other people. To be a saint in Christ means this. It means that in Christ, through Christ's work, you and I are now a part of God's people. That's all it means. And being his people, we are set apart. That's what holiness is, set-apartness. We are set apart not just to look at and be pretty, but we're set apart for his work. So the Colossians are saints But they're also, look what Paul says there in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers. And like Dr. Price said last week, whenever Paul uses the word brothers, usually that's a gender-inclusive word. You can just as well say brothers and sisters as your NIVs probably do. Faithful brothers, sisters, in Christ at Colossae. So not only are we as Christians set apart by God, Called by God to be His people, but when we are called, we are called together. Called to be the same people of God in unity, together in Christ Jesus. And when that happens, a new definition of family becomes necessary. Brothers and sisters, this is not—it's not a nicety. It's not. Oh, that's a cute thing to say, Paul Christians. This is a reality. This is our new reality if we're in Christ together. We really are brothers and sisters together in Christ. It's not a metaphor. If you've been purchased by Christ, if you've been made new in Christ, you're not your old self anymore. In Christ, you have a new father and a whole new set of brothers and sisters So if God's bought you, if He's purchased you by the blood of Christ out of the domain of darkness, and He's transferred you into Christ's kingdom, listen, if that's true, let me tell you what's true for you. You are more closely related to Christians in North Korea than you are to your flesh and blood brother who isn't trusting in Christ. You're more a sister to an Iraqi or an Afghani Christian than you are to your sister by birth who isn't following the Lord. It's weird, but it should be a comfort to you. Our ultimate comfort is not that we belong to any particular earthly family. Whether they're a really good family or not, whether they're really wealthy or famous or historic or patriotic or whatever it is, our only comfort is that we are part of God's family. Amen? And we got there by being bought by Jesus Christ, reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. So those of us who are in Christ together are saints together and we're brothers and sisters together in Christ. And here's what what Paul offers to these brothers and sisters, these saints in Colossae. And he offers that to the Colossians from our Father. Look at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, what does he say? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace. What's he talking about? Those are kind of christian words, words. We need to be careful with Christian-y words that really don't have any meaning. What Paul is saying here is that God's disposition towards these people, his, his posture, if you will, Towards the Colossians is grace and peace. That's how God views the the Colossians. It's his posture toward them. Every time the Colossians go to God in prayer, they're to know this. They're to know with confidence that God's attitude towards them is grace. And because of that grace, he offers his peace to them. And that is made possible by Christ's work for them. When God looks at these people, and if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, his posture towards you, it's not condemnation and wrath. That's the way it used to be, though. The way it used to be that way before you entered his fellowship through faith in Christ. But he now views the Colossian Christians and us Christians who are trusting in Christ's work, he sees us as his own children. That's why we call him Father. And being his children, we receive his grace. And being his children, we are at peace with him. Now, we're kind of used to this. Because this is, we've got this whole Bible that talks about God's grace towards us. But the Colossians, they weren't used to this. This is their first letter from Paul. And this is a bigger deal to them than you might realize. What you're going to see as we study study this, this letter, is this is a church, it's a people who struggle with their identity, their Gentile identity. They're not sure if they can worship as equals with these Jewish Christians who were God's people long before they were. They see these Jewish people claiming to be Christ followers who are still following old Jewish customs like Sabbath and new moon festivals, and they're eating kosher, and they're fasting on certain days, and these Gentile Christians look to them, and they feel inferior. They feel as if God does not accept them because they were born Greek and not Jew. And what's worse is that apparently there are some people in this church, in the Colossian church, who are reinforcing this division that these two groups have, reinforcing the, the religiosity of Judaism, and teaching people that real peace with God can only be obtained through rituals and do this, don't do this, regulations. They're wrongly teaching that the Jews were the ones God really showed his peace to, and the Gentiles would have to catch up to earn that peace. Do you see why grace and peace would be important to them? Paul's letter to to these people, to this church, from this greeting onward, is to remind them that our peace with God is through Christ. And we've received that through God's grace. And friends, that is true this morning. If you're here and you think you have obtained some special relationship with God because of the life that you have lived, or anything that you've done, or some rituals you go through on Sunday morning or some rules that you follow in worship. Friend, I love you, but you are wrong. Your only hope at peace with God is not your rituals. It's not your traditions. Your only hope at peace with God has always been God's grace towards you. The grace that God has shown you in Christ Jesus. He offers to you true peace with himself because Jesus Christ has taken upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve. If You're here and you're trying and striving to earn peace with God through your efforts. Stop. If you feel troubled and anxious and fearful because you feel like everything you try to do isn't enough, you're right. It is not enough. Nothing you do will bring you peace. That peace is already available to you freely through Christ Jesus. For those of you who are already trusting in Christ's wrath-absorbing, justice-satisfying work for you, listen, God's disposition towards you is grace and peace. Revel in that. Take joy in that, Christian. Let that be your comfort. Let the knowledge of that truth give you confidence before God. And in that confidence, know that you can confess your sin to Him. And you can trust in Christ's forgiveness. And you can ask Him to show you those areas in your life where you need to be bearing more fruit For Christ. And you know you can do that. Because his disposition towards you is grace and peace. He's your father. Know that your confidence in the peace that you have with God is a better peace than you will ever have with any person. It's a better peace than you will ever experience in this life. It is a life-giving peace that will overflow and it will overflow into your relationships with others. Know, Christian, that this is the peace that is the foundation of the Christian life. God, our Father, offers His grace and peace to us. That is His disposition towards us. And we have every reason to be thankful. So would you pray with me in closing?